Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 84, The Broad Street Riot. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're going to discuss one of Boston's many melees, the Broad Street Riot of 1837. Despite our reputation as a coastal liberal enclave, Boston has a history of hostility towards newcomers. When the Irish began arriving in our harbor en masse, Yankee nativists welcomed them with violence and prejudice. In this week's episode, we'll discuss how a funeral procession in the wrong place at the wrong time led to a brawl with well over 10,000 participants and onlookers. But before we talk about firemen and fisticuffs, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. Since our main topic this week will involve some of Boston's many 19th century Irish immigrants, it only makes sense to feature a historic site pertaining to Irish Americans. Along the Freedom Trail, on the corner of Washington and School Streets, across from the old corner bookstore, stands Boston's Irish Famine Memorial. Two bronze statues face each other on their granite plinths. One portrays an emaciated family in ragged clothes, and the other a well-dressed, healthy family. Between them is a circular plaque flush-mounted in the ground, representing the Atlantic Ocean. The first family is meant to represent the impoverished and starving Irish population left behind in the old country, while the second represents the prosperity of those who made their way to Boston. Surrounding them, eight plaques interpret the history that's on display. Taken slightly out of order, here's what some of those plaques have to say. The Great Famine, which ravaged Ireland between 1845 and 1850, was the major catastrophe of the 19th century. It brought horrific suffering and loss to Ireland's 8.5 million people. Over 1 million died of starvation and disease. Another 2 million emigrated, seeking sanctuary in Boston and other North American cities. Those remaining in Ireland suffered poverty, eviction, and the decimation of their culture. Starting in 1845, a virulent fungus devastated the potato crop, depriving poor Irish families of their main source of food and subsistence. Ironically, as thousands of Irish starved to death, the British government then ruling Ireland callously allowed tons of grain to be exported from Ireland to pay absentee landlords their rents. Starvation and disease spread across the Irish landscape, claiming one million lives. Half a million people were ruthlessly evicted from their homes. Many died on the side of the road, their mouths stained by grass in a desperate attempt to survive. The features of the people were gaunt, their eyes wild and hollow, and their gait feeble and tottering. Pass through the fields and you were met by little groups bearing home on their shoulders a coffin, wrote Irish novelist William Carleton. In a frantic attempt to outwit death, nearly two million people fled Ireland. Many thousands of peasants who could still scrape up the means fled to the sea as if pursued by wild beasts and betook themselves to America, wrote Irish patriot John Mitchell. The immigrants boarded vessels so unseaworthy that they were called coffin ships. So many passengers died at sea that poet John Boyle O'Reilly called the Atlantic Ocean upon which they journeyed a bowl of tears. In 1847 alone, 37,000 Irish refugees landed in Boston on the edge of death and despair, impoverished and sick. The newcomers moved in along Boston's waterfront, packed together in damp cellars and overcrowded hovels. Children in the Irish district, wrote Bostonian Lemuel Shattuck, seemed literally born to die. 
Despite hostility from some Bostonians and signs of no Irish need apply, the famine Irish eventually transformed themselves from impoverished refugees to hardworking, successful Americans. Today, 44 million Americans claim Irish ancestry, leading the nation in Medal of Honor winners and excelling in literature, sports, business, medicine, and entertainment. Though the sentiments are high-minded, and the explanation should give us cause to reflect on our current administration's policies toward immigration broadly, and refugees in particular, not everyone is a fan of the Irish Famine Memorial. Boston Globe writer Sebastian Smee called it the most mocked and reviled public sculpture in Boston, pure kitsch. And the Irish Times said that it was full of pious cliches and dead conventions. We've never thought it was that bad, but perhaps we're biased, because one day in 2012, Jake was walking down the street in Downtown Crossing and happened to stumble across the Irish president laying a wreath at the monument. Just for fun, we'll include a couple of blurry cell phone photos that he snapped in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a program at Old South Meeting House that'll remind you just how rebellious Massachusetts has always been even in the earliest days of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Podcast veterans may remember an episode we released way, way back in December of 2016, describing what we called the First Boston Revolution. Honestly, it's an episode that we should probably rewrite and re-record now that we're better podcasters, but we told the story of a 1689 rebellion in which Massachusetts militias marched on Boston and placed the hated royal governor under arrest. The event at Old South is called A Hundred Years Before Revolution, and it should help fill in the blanks on why residents of the Bay Colony felt that they had no other recourse in 1689 than violent uprising. Here's how they describe it. In 1662, the newly restored King of England, Charles II, demanded that the Massachusetts Bay Colony alter their laws to align with imperial priorities. Two years later, four royal commissioners arrived to enforce these demands. What followed was a season of extraordinary political activism, as colonial men and women mobilized to protect their liberties and local institutions. These Puritan activists believed that liberties were gifts from God, and relinquishing these freedoms amounted to shunning his gifts. Drawing from petitions, sermons, and letters of the day, historian Adrian Chastain Weimer will share the largely untold story of 17th century New Englanders who fasted, prayed, and spoke out against the threat of arbitrary rule. The talk will be held at 6.30 p.m. on June 20th. Tickets are free, but we recommend reserving yours in advance in case it sells out. We'll have a link to the reservation page in this week's show notes. On the afternoon of Sunday, June 11, 1837, the mayor of Boston was seated in his accustomed place in the organ loft of King's Chapel, engaged in handing round peppermints to his associates in the choir with the laudable purpose of helping them to keep awake during the service. His small children, seated with their lovely mother in the square pew below, regarded this custom with jealous disapprobation. The service was quite as soporific for them as for members of the choir, and the tenors were said to be so fond of peppermints that there were only a few left for family distribution after the benediction. On this particular Sunday, however, no one could be unduly sleepy. Hardly had Dr. Greenwood begun his, Dearly beloved brethren, 
the scripture moveth us, and so on, when something else moved or disconcerted the congregation. The Tremont Street door of the chapel was violently burst open, and three men hurried up the gallery stairs. A moment later, they came down again, bringing the mayor with them, and they could then be heard running down School Street under the open windows of the chapel. The service went on without further interruption, though the choir missed the mayor's fine bass voice and directing hand. The members of the congregation remembered that there had been a fire alarm earlier in the afternoon, and may have surmised that some threatening spread of the fire had occasioned the hasty summons for the mayor. Thus, Samuel A. Elliott, grandson of Mayor Samuel Elliott, recalls his grandfather's summons to the Broad Street Riot in his 1937 book, Being Mayor of Boston, a Hundred Years Ago. There are two social factors that, combined, led to this explosive event. The first, which we've discussed several times in past episodes, is the fierce anti-Catholic prejudice that was so prevalent in early and mid-19th century Boston. Prior to the potato famine in Ireland in 1845, and the subsequent immigration wave, Boston had been a very homogenous city. It was English-descended and almost universally Protestant. A shift began when the Irish population more than tripled from 2000 in 1820 to 7,000 in 1830. That shift became tectonic after the potato famine began. By the 1850 census, first and second generation Irish immigrants made up about 60,000 of Boston's 130,000 residents. The newcomers sought work as laborers and formed communities by the waterfront and along Broad and Ann Streets. And just like today, the stigmas of living in poverty fueled prejudice. Mass Moments tells us that in 1825, confrontations along the waterfront became so common that the mayor stationed six constables in the district from 10 p.m. until sunrise just to keep the peace. The Catholicism practiced by the Irish played a large part in the general disdain expressed by Yankee wasps. You can learn more about the historical roots of this rift in episode 75, Pope's Night Remastered. On Broad Street, near today's South Station, it was common for groups of nativists to vandalize Irish homes and attack Irish immigrants. In 1832, Mayor Charles Wells received a petition praying that some measure may be taken to suppress the dangerous riots, routes, and tumultuous assemblies in and about Broad Street. Working-class native Bostonians resented the newly arrived Irish as they competed for jobs. For the political class, Mass Moments describes another dimension to the prejudice. Boston's political elite had other reasons to resent the Irish. Most Irish identified with Jacksonian appeals to the common man, and with Andrew Jackson himself, who made much of his Irish lineage. By supporting Jackson's campaign, the Boston Irish helped him defeat Massachusetts native son John Quincy Adams in the 1828 presidential race. As Boston's newspapers, ministers, politicians, and public speakers began to wage an all-out campaign of anti-Irish denunciation, confrontation seemed inevitable. When it came, it was no surprise that it involved an Irish funeral. Irish funerals were, and continue to be, quite different from Protestant funerals. Much judgment was passed on the way that the Irish sent off their dead, 
gatherings that lasted several days and included drinking, dancing, singing, and, gasp, laughter and merriment. The second factor that led to the explosive moment was the city's practice of engaging volunteers almost exclusively in fighting fires. Rather than maintain a paid department as we do today, the city paid the company that was the first to arrive on the scene. Unsurprisingly, this led to fierce competition and occasional violence. The volunteers were nearly all working-class Yankees, meaning American-born Protestants. These were the class of men who stood to lose out as Irish workers found employment. Likewise, the Irish had a deep resentment of the volunteer firemen who just three years earlier failed to put out a fire at the Ursuline Convent in Charlestown. Instead, they added to the destruction, an event detailed in episode 11. Patrick Brown of Historical Digressions describes the events that unfolded before Mayor Elliott was pulled from the choir box. At about 3 p.m. that afternoon, engine company number 20, known as the Extinguisher, had just returned from a fire in Roxbury. Tired and ready for a pint or two, the firemen stowed their engine in their engine house on East Street, now in Boston's Leather District, but then largely an Irish residential neighborhood, and most of the small company went to a nearby pub. About the time they emerged, a funeral procession of about 500 Irish immigrants was making its way up East Street. The funeral was for John Copeland, whom the Boston Post called a very respectable man. Boston fire companies of that time were mostly volunteers, Protestant, American-born young men of modest means, who resented the newly arrived Irish immigrants for a variety of reasons, primarily because they competed for jobs, which are now growing ever more scarce. The firemen attempted to make their way along the sidewalks to their engine house, but the dense crowd made it difficult for them to pass through. One of the firemen, 19-year-old George Fay, was smoking a cigar, and one of the Irishmen demanded that he extinguish it out of respect for the dead. Fay allegedly refused, gave the Irishman a few choice words, and a brawl ensued. The small group of firemen were massively outnumbered. They retreated to their engine house, things quieted, and the procession moved on. Various newspaper reports and court testimony contradict as to what happened next. In fact, there are multiple versions of just about every aspect of this event. The upshot is, the foreman of the company, W.W. Miller, ordered the firemen to bring their engine out of the engine house and to ring the bell, sounding an alarm that would attract other fire companies as if there was a fire. Miller testified that he gave the order as some Irishman attempted to get into the engine house, and he feared for the lives of his company. Others argue that Miller was looking for revenge. After his order was carried out, Miller went on foot to the nearby engine house of company number 8. According to the Boston Evening Transcript, a fireman, probably Miller, burst into the quarters of number 8 shouting, The Irish have risen upon us and are going to kill us! Nearby Company 9, responding to what they thought was a legitimate fire alarm, arrived just as the funeral procession was turning onto New Broad Street. Their horse-drawn wagon veered into the crowd, scattering and knocking down the mourners. The Irish assumed that the assault was deliberate, and another brawl erupted. As more fire companies arrived, 
and Irishmen poured out of nearby homes into the street to help their friends and relatives, the fight escalated into a full-blown riot. Protestant workmen came running to the aid of the firefighters, and a melee ensued. Before long, an estimated 800 men were doing battle with sticks, stones, bricks, and cudgels, with at least 10,000 more urging them on. Now outnumbered, the Irish were defeated and driven back to their homes. Instead of dying down, the violence turned to looting as a nativist gang raided nearby houses, breaking doors and windows and beating the occupants. Furniture and other possessions were destroyed and thrown into the street. According to a historian quoted in Peter F. Stevens's Hidden History of the Boston Irish, little-known stories from Ireland's next parish over, feather beds were ripped up and their contents scattered to the winds in such quantities that for a while, Broad Street seemed to be having a snowstorm. The pavement in spots buried ankle-deep in feathers. After raging for about three hours, the riot was quelled when Mayor Samuel A. Elliott called in the National Lancers, a newly formed cavalry company, and some 800 other members of the state militia with fixed bayonets. Among them were the Montgomery Guards, a short-lived Irish-American infantry company. Named for Richard Montgomery, an Irish-born general who had served in the Continental Army, the Montgomery Guards formed just six months earlier, when the petition was approved by State Governor Edward Everett Hale. After the War of 1812, the size of the U.S. Army was greatly reduced, and a large number of volunteer militia companies sprung up across the country to fill the gap. The militias protected local people and property during times of war and civil unrest. In addition to regular drills and inspections, volunteers attended banquets, dances, and parades in smart-looking uniforms. For working-class men, it was a way to gain social status and attract the ladies. And for immigrants in particular, it was a chance to display their loyalty to their new country. The Montgomery Guards, eight naturalized Irish immigrants and 32 native-born citizens of Irish descent, were provided with custom-designed green uniforms with scarlet facings and gold trim and caps bearing their own company emblem, an American eagle alighting on an Irish harp. The guards did such a good job at this, their first piece of action, that city officials and the local press commended their performance. A week later, the governor himself reviewed their first parade, which was followed by a formal banquet. Almost three months later to the day, on the morning of September 12, 1837, the annual fall muster was held on Boston Common. The Montgomery Guards joined the other nine companies that made up the light infantry regiment of the Boston Brigade. Just as the companies finished moving into line, a signal was given, and the rank and file of the city guard marched off the field and back to their armory playing Yankee Doodle on the fife and drum. Their officers were left standing at attention. Five other infantry companies followed suit. The Lafayette Guards, the Independent Fusiliers, the Washington Light Infantry, the Mechanics Rifles, and the Winslow Guards. This was an insult to the highest degree. Heads held high, the Montgomery Guards went through their planned maneuvers with the remaining companies, all while being taunted and jeered by spectators. When the brigade was dismissed that afternoon, the Montgomery Guards marched back to their armory in Dock Square near Faneuil Hall. 
A hostile crowd followed them down Tremont Street, shouting slurs and throwing stones, lumps of coal, and wood. Neither the local constabulary nor the other militia companies came to their defense. By the time they made it to their armory, the crowd had grown to about 3,000. The Montgomery guards were trapped inside as the angry mob threatened to storm the building. Only when Mayor Elliott arrived with a group of prominent and armed citizens was the crowd persuaded to disperse. Shockingly, several of the rioters were arrested and tried in the municipal court. Two of the offenders were sentenced to three years in the House of Correction, and another to two years. The local press was severe on the militiamen who deserted their posts and denounced the rioters, while the Montgomery guards were praised for their discipline and restraint in the face of provocation. A local paper, the Post Atlas, details what happened. The review yesterday passed off remarkably well, and the troops looked elegantly. Their evolutions in the afternoon evinced a discipline and knowledge of military tactics highly creditable to the officers and men, and afforded much pleasure to a large number of spectators. An occurrence in the morning tended somewhat to mar the harmony of the occasion. Some prejudice has been expressed by several of the late infantry companies against a new corps called the Montgomery Guards, composed of naturalized citizens and the descendants of foreigners and the consequence was that immediately after marching onto the parade ground in the morning, the privates and non-commissioned officers of the Washington Light Infantry, City Guards, and Lafayette Guards, and a large portion of the Fusiliers and Mechanic Riflemen, left the field in violation of orders, and did not return. We deeply regret this act of insubordination as setting a bad example and derogatory to the character of good disciplinarians. We think the prejudice against the guards is founded on erroneous impressions, and is one which should not be allowed to exist among intelligent freemen. The story that the guards are composed principally of Irishmen is incorrect, as 32 of the 40 members are native-born citizens, and 8 only are naturalized Irishmen, we are informed. But even if they were all naturalized citizens, we cannot perceive why they should be treated with scorn while their organization is in strict conformance with our laws, and their deportment unexceptionable. Washington did not object to fighting for liberty with Lafayette, DeKalb, Steuben, and an illustrious host of foreigners who poured their blood out in the battles of our revolution. Nor did Franklin, Adams, Jefferson, and Hancock refuse to sign the Declaration of Independence because it bore the signatures of Floyd, Smith, Taylor, and Wilson. We do not believe that the present generation are any more patriotic or wiser than their fathers, or that the children run any risk of disgracing themselves by following the examples of their ancestors. In February of 1838, Governor Everett ordered the disbandment of all six mutinous companies. In April, however, succumbing to political pressure, he ordered the disbandment of the Montgomery Guards as well on the grounds that their reappearance would provoke outrages of a dangerous character. Within six months, all six of the offending companies had been rechartered under different names, but with the same officers and the same enlisted men. The Montgomery Guards were not given permission to reorganize. Miraculously, no immediate deaths resulted from the Broad Street Riot. In one case, a Yankee fireman was knocked unconscious, and false reports of his death caused the rioting to escalate. 
a local paper announced the following Monday, There have been many battered and broken heads, and many bodily bruises, but we are inclined to believe that there has been no actual loss of life. However, thousands of dollars in damage was done to the property belonging to some of the city's poorest inhabitants. The militia arrested 34 Irishmen and four firemen. A grand jury indicted 14 of the Irish and all four of the firemen. At the municipal court trial, a Yankee jury acquitted all four of the firemen and convicted four Irishmen, three of whom were sentenced to several months of hard labor. While there's no easy fix for racism, as indicated by our current reality, three months later, Mayor Elliott established a professional paid fire department with all new hires requiring the appointment of the mayor and aldermen. To learn more about the Broad Street Riot, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 084. We'll have a link to a June 16, 1837 article on the riot from the Salem Gazette, a complete history of the Boston Fire Department from 1630 to 1888, a report on the riot prepared by Mayor Samuel A. Elliott in a joint committee, as well as the other sources cited in the episode. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week to talk about three different times in Boston history, over three different centuries, when daytime turned to darkness. <laughs> <laughs>